Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people. Your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. Welcome to Marin Costello Radio. On this episode of Marin Costello Radio, we will explore the truths and experiences of my aunt Christine Weiss on her journey navigating motherhood with a special needs child. In sharing Christine's story, we hope to contribute to a kinder and more aware community surrounding individuals with autism and their respective families. This interview is our way of championing her unique story as a mother, a wife, and a woman. We thank you in advance for your compassion and understanding of my family's viewpoints and experiences. And if this episode resonates with you, please be sure to like, share, and leave a review. Thank you so much for joining in and helping me welcome in my aunt and uncle. Please note that this episode is pre-recorded to honor yesterday as World Autism Awareness Day. Christine Weiss is the author of the book titled Educating Marston, a compelling memoir about a mother and son's journey through autism. Dr. Eric Weiss is the co-author of Educating Marston and renowned surgeon who has recently incorporated umbilical cord blood stem cells into his practice after seeing the incredible healing properties in his son, Marston. Thank you both for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. To be here. Thank you, Marin. What an intro. I'm honored that we're related. <laughs> we're honored. Um, So the first question that, and probably the most important question that my staff wanted me to ask you is, can they both call you Auntie Chrissy and Uncle Eric? (laughs) Because they were part of the family. Yes, they were so compelled by the book, um, moved to tears, and they just want to be adopted. So that I think is the, that's the interview, really. It's just me asking if my staff can be adopted. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Really, thank them for reading it and taking the time to read it. Of course. It's important to share the information. Of course. I've sent it to almost everyone that I know who has kids, especially little ones. Um, and, you know, I wanted them to obviously read this because I'm interviewing you guys, but it's just such a special story and very close to my heart. So they were both moved and have so many questions that are on, you know, my list of questions to ask you. And I hope that that is the same experience for everyone else who um, listens and who also reads the book. Um, So for those of our listeners who perhaps haven't read your book, what is the book about and what is the mission behind it? Okay, well, the book is about my journey with my youngest son, Marston, who was diagnosed with autism. Um, It's really, you know, from birth to where he is now, which he's 25 years old and and what um, what therapies I did with him, how he got better you know, uh, I, I, I really feel that during the time that I, uh, started this journey, there was no internet, there was no zoom meetings, there was no podcast. So it was really, um, a difficult journey to find information. And I felt the need to write it down for people who are behind me on this journey, because there were so many things that I found that pulled him through the window and got him to be a productive member of society. And, I really feel that when you learn something, it's your duty to teach the next person the same things. That's amazing. What was your initial impetus for writing the book? I actually don't know this. What was your like aha moment of I need to share this information? Um, I think the aha moment was probably, you know, I, I wrote so many things down. I'm kind of, you know, obsessive about writing everything down that I did with them. So I knew I had a good, um, feel for everything that I had done. But when we did the umbilical cords, 
stem cells and we saw such an amazing transformation. I just knew that I couldn't keep that information to myself, that it was, you know, something that you share to help so many people who are walking such a difficult journey. How many years the were problem, you in therapy? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think one of the problems with autism is there's no objective scale. You can't do a blood test and go, oh, he's severe or he's moderate or he's mild. And so as we are going through these different therapies, um, and there is a bunch of them, unfortunately, there's people who will try to tell you everything will help, uh, is, is Chris took copious amounts of notes so we could go back and see what we did and what helped and what didn't help. And we reviewed them you know, every six months so we could stop at things that weren't working and explore new things that were. So when she decided to write the book, she had this incredible uh, many notebooks filled from, you know, from the initial therapies to the end of therapies. And so it, uh, it, it made it easier to build the timeline and, and how we, we approach the uh, problem. How long were you doing alternative therapies before the umbilical cord um, transfusion? Did you, were you in therapy? Like how, how many years led up to that? Hmm. Uh, 20. 20. 20 years, yeah. He was doing therapy probably 18 months was 17 months was the first start of therapy. And, you know, he still does therapy. So I think, right. you know, he has a mentor four days a week, you know, he's, he's, you know, you're not, he's not cured. He's just so much better for, for the therapies that I did with him that he is um, able to do things on his own. He, he, um, he's independent. He lives independently. You know, I do have mentors that go in and check on him, um, through the village where he lives right now. So, you know, it, it's a constant, it, I think it will be probably for his lifetime. What do you think? Well, I agree. And I think that the, the brain is plastic. We're always learning new things and, 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 uh, making new memories. And one of the, the hallmarks of autism is, is type of social maladaptive behavior, whether that's speaking or, or inappropriate uh, in social situations. So the more social situations you, you put them in, the more he speaks, the more he learns to speak, the more he learns socially acceptable behaviors. Um, and that's all done through, through therapy. So every time you go to a restaurant, every time you meet somebody new, it's essentially therapy. And so we try to put him in those situations where he's always uh, learning something. Challenged, yeah, exactly. How, how long after incorporating stem cells did you notice a difference in his behavior? Oh, it was immediate. It was the next day. The next day we, we saw such a change. It really, we were dumbfounded. We sat at the breakfast table and we both, I mean, I, I wept. I was crying while he's talking and he didn't understand why I was crying because I saw such a huge difference in his, um, his cognitive gathering of information and then speaking the information. Marston spoke um, really for uh, direction only, like his speaking wasn't for, you know, asking you about yourself, your interpersonal things or what, how you felt. 
it was really for what are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing the next day? What's for dinner? What's for dinner? And he sat down the next morning. He got him in the afternoon about one o'clock, uh, went to sleep. And the next day in the morning, he, uh, he asked my, Eric and I, uh, where did you two meet? And I said, oh, we met in the lobby. And he said, no, mom where did you and dad meet for the first time? And I said, whoa, what? And I started telling him about it. And I thought to myself, my, my older son's never asked me that question. And he, he was having pancakes that he has every single day. You know, when he was younger, he would have gluten-free pancakes and he would put the syrup on it and he would just, go about eating it. And he looked at the syrup and he said, mom, where does syrup come from? Is it from a tree? Is it a recipe? I mean, he was asking me questions that would blew our mind. And I just didn't know how long it was going to last. Was this, you know, I mean, what do you think? No, I agree. I, I think that the, the two questions at, at breakfast were amazing that, uh, that, it was insight. The first question I think was about the, the syrup. And then the second, while he was eating about how we met. And I think that it, 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 we can talk about this later, that stem cells kind of unlock your brain, um, especially with autism, that it, it, it potentially makes new connections and it helps you to ask questions and, and better cognitive abilities and things like that. Amazing. Auntie Chrissy, um, a loaded question. How did you do it? <laughs> Where does that resilience and tenacity come from? I think it comes from my mom. I, you know, I was number five in the family and, you know, we, you know, we have a, a sister who special needs. And I think I, I was closest in age. She's number six. So I was closest in age to her. So I saw how hard my mom worked with her, whether it was, you know, cognitively or, you know, not knowing, but it was in my brain, you know, at how hard she worked with my sister. And I think I saw that and I saw how strong she was as a woman. And I, I knew that I couldn't give up because she never gave up. And so I think it was part of my DNA. Um, it, it's hard. I don't think that anyone who um, has an autistic child can even fathom, who doesn't have an autistic child can fathom how hard it is. I mean, there are definitely days that I, you know, I had a pity party. I would take a bath, I would close the door, I would cry my eyes out, but that was it. I was done, I walked out the door, you know, and I think we all, you know, what, no matter what the challenge is for us, we all have to let go and understand that it, it's a hard thing and be okay with ourselves to do that. But then we can take maybe one step forward, two steps back, one step, you know, it's just a process that you, you're okay with that. You know, it's a very hard journey, but I think that we want answers as a mother, as a mother, you want answers, no matter what, what's, you know, wrong with your child or what's, you know, what they're going through, you want answers and you want to do it correctly. And you want to give them the best results possible. So 
yeah, it was, it's a, it's hard to wear so many hats. Speaking I think of your someone... faith gave you a lot of, uh, of comfort. Pardon me? Your faith. Right. And my comfort. faith gave me a lot of comfort. I mean, you know, we can't do everything perfectly. I don't care how many hats everybody wears. There's somebody that doesn't get the hundred percent. You know, we, we just do the best that we can. And I, you know, would put my head down at night and I would pray and hope that I could get up the next morning and do the best that I could. So I think my faith was, was really what kept me going. You, well, you are so multifaceted and you, and you do so many things and being a spouse and a mother and a mother to an autistic child, how did you do all of those things and still take care of yourself and still be social and not lose your mind and not lose yourself? Because as long as I've known you, you've seemed to have it all together for lack of better words. And you just are so confident and sure of yourself and definitely a role model for my sister and I. So how did you manage to do all that and not lose yourself? Because I'm party of one and I can't even imagine how, how you did all those things and still stood strong in the foundation of the woman that you are. Well, I think in the beginning, I, I wasn't very social in the beginning because I kind of hunkered down and, and just concentrated on Marston. So, I mean, there are people in the town that I've been in that I've been in for what, 30 years that have been here for 30 years. And we live in a small town that I'm meeting for the first time because in the beginning I was so focused on Marston. You know, it was, it was Marston, it was Marston's therapy, you know, and, and as you know, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not perfect. I didn't do it all. I, I tried my best and, and, you know, some people in the family got less of me. My husband got less of me. You know, I did the best that I could with him, but he got less of me and my other children, you know, I have a godson that I helped raise and my son Austin got less of me, but I knew that they were okay. They're they have lots of gifts that they're given. They're going to be okay. So nobody's, you know, perfect. And, you know, I never want to say that because I know how hard, what a struggle it is. You just try to do your best and you, um, you focus on the positive. I'm not a negative person. I writing the book was very difficult for me because I had to go back and I don't go back. I go forward. And so to go back and re, you know, relive those things, and um, it was very difficult. It was uh, emotional. There were days that I, I couldn't write. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to write because I'm living through those dark times. And um, but moving forward, I knew that it was something that you have to go through. You know, when you go through these things, you you grow, you learn, it's like sharp, you know, iron sharpens iron, you know, you go through it and you become more resilient. So I knew going through it, it was very, very difficult and I'm still going through it, but I see light. I see how my work has paid off with Marston. My work has paid off with Austin and William. I mean, Austin and William are very compassionate kids. I mean, it, it makes my heart happy that they, you know, Austin was a 
was a very you know social and he's handsome and smart, but I would see him at bowls. You know, he was great on the baseball team and I would see him pick uh, teammates that were less, you know, less talented than he was first. And that was part of his makeup. He learned that, you know, it's more important to reward someone than to be rewarded yourself. So I, I really just, you know, I see the growth going through it. You don't, but now you see how everything has kind of washed, you know, through each one of my children, which is a good thing. You know, Marston's a really cool kid and, and they embrace him like all the cousins do. They embrace his, his Marstonian person that he is. And we're all better for knowing him. <laughs> he's, the, he's the best. <laughs> um, there's a part in the book where, and I don't want to misquote you, but um, where Marston says something, he asks you why he doesn't have Austin's brain. And that part of the book got brought up when I had my staff meeting. Um, yeah because you know, they were, it was both moving, it was moving to my staff. And I said, honestly, I ask that question all the time. I'd love Austin's brain. I, feel like <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I also wish I had Austin's brain. He's brilliant. And um, yeah, I just feel like he got, you know, the best parts of both of you. And um, for those who don't know me personally, Austin is my cousin, but also one of my best friends. And he is one of the most sensitive, compassionate, but also the life of the party and just a sponge. He's, such a wonderful human. Yeah, he is. He, it, the funny thing is last night he texted both of us and you know, that's a big deal when he texts us and he sent me a picture of a kid who um, played baseball with him at bowls. He was a JV um, played on the JV team with them and he has an autistic child and he sent me the picture and he goes, do you remember this, you know, boy. And I said, yes. And he said, I, I told him about your book. He's going to read it. And I want you to reach out to him, mom. And I just wrote back. I said, you are a good soul. Like this is, you know, he hadn't seen this, this boy since, you know, high, high school. school yeah. And I just thought, you know, it would have been easy to dismiss that, but he did reach out. And I, I thought, okay, I did a good job. <laughs> I did. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so there are a lot of parallels between your relationship with Paula and then Austin's relationship with Marston. Was going back and and rewriting your book, I know that you were going through your own dark times, but was it more inspirational reflecting on your relationship with Paula or your experience with your mom and Paula, or was it more triggering? Um, I think it it was motivating. You know, it didn't really trigger negative for me. It was motivating because I, my mom was so strong. She was such a strong woman that when I, you know, when you become a mother and you look back on it and you see what your, you know, parents went through, I think it was much more motivating for me because she didn't have any of the tools that I have in, you know, 2021, or even, you know, in 1995, when he was born. So it was more motivating for me, it gave me, you know, motivation to go forward. And it, just like when, you know, she, 
you know, I, I, in the book, when I talk about um, when my mom was kind of pressured into putting my sister into a institution and I will, you know, that is a moment in time that is kind of a snapshot of something that I will never forget when she brought, brought us all there. And she said, remember, you never let go of anyone. You bring them back into the family. We're never, you know, she brought us there to show us what this institution was and what it was doing to our, you know, sister. our sister. And she said, we are all going to be a family and we're all going to help and we're all going to do our job. And I just thought, wow. I mean, I was little and I was like, wow. I knew it was the one of the most powerful moments. So it was just a cool thing. She's, she, I got lucky, you know, I got the golden ticket when it came to parents. As did Austin and Marston. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so on that note, a lot of specialists seem to be dismissive towards your motherly instincts um, on your journey within the 100%. book that you talk about. Um, so do you have any suggestions for parents out there who are having a hard time being heard by specialists and doctors? I just say stick to your guns. I mean, a mother is the best resource of her child. We know our children better than anyone. And so when they are dismissive, you know, I, I changed pediatricians, several pediatricians, because they weren't, you know, listening to me. And, you know, you don't have to be rude about it. I just knew when I walked out, I wasn't, I wasn't going back in there because they weren't, it wasn't until I met a doctor who said, I understand you are the expert on your child. And I went, well, I found the, you know, this is the right person. So there are people out there. There are good doctors out there. There are good, you know, mommies that will find those good doctors, but I just say, you know, be persistent because you are the expert. Uncle, do you have any suggestions on how to approach a medical professional as a medical professional in that regard? Well, the biggest issue is to make sure you have somebody with an open mind. Because unfortunately, sometimes the more you get educated, the more you think you know it all. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in, in my situation, there was two things that, that opened my eyes. Um, one, I did my general surgery at University of California, San Francisco. So there was a lot of Eastern medicine. And then, you know, when I was at Duke, we didn't learn a lot about acupuncture or acupressure. We didn't, you know, learn about herbs, but I saw people get healed by people who in the United States weren't even considered doctors. Um, and then the second thing I was, I was on pediatric surgery and we had a, a child whose mother said he had, you know, this physical finding X and we couldn't prove it. We looked at him, he didn't have it. We did every, you know, X-ray we could figure out but the mom was so, you know, persistent. Um, and then my, my professor just said, you know, the mom's the expert. If we're wrong, this child could be in great danger. Uh, if she's wrong, the kid gets an operation. You know, we would go in and check things out, but we ended up operating on the child. The mom was right. We, you know, uh, and the kid got fixed up. It was solely based on her detailed history in telling us what the belly looked like and what it felt like um, that we did this. And it wasn't, and we couldn't prove it because the child was better by the time, you know, the, the child was at the hospital and we were called in to evaluate. Uh, but uh, those two things just kind of told me is, 
you know, you don't know the whole story. And, and there are other things at work here that you may know about and keep an open mind and, and then try to put the pieces together. Love that. Auntie, something that you mentioned um, as far as consistency goes is that you could always count on your husband giving you a kiss before going to work each day. <laughs> what did that consistency do for you during these trying times? Well, I, I'm a routine girl. I, um, I think children on the spectrum like a routine. They, they don't like their, their day disrupted. You know, they find comfort in a routine. And so I think for me, having, knowing that, you know, even though Eric and I maybe had, were two ships in the night, I could always count on the fact that, you know, I had his love in the background. He was going to support me through this. And that kiss was like, okay, we're still in this together. And I could get up the next day and start my routine. You know, it just, it, it meant, it still does, you know, it's still, you know, a very important part of our strength together, you know, so I, I look forward to it. <laughs> I love it. It's such, it's so special to watch too, as, as your niece. Um, Uncle, in layman's terms, can you explain what it means for a person to have special needs? Well, well, special needs is a big, broad category. And I think that it, it's become now probably limited to uh, like a cognitive impairment, you know, something that you could probably see or, or, or at least test. Um, it, it's very is, uh, easy to see the person in the wheelchair. Well, that person has special needs because he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. And, and the very fact that, that you can see the disability makes it plain and easy. Um, when you use that term special needs, it, it, it tends to be um, probably more, like I said before, associated with, with cognitive issues. And then most people don't see that you know, the person may look normal, you know, may act normal, but we don't know they, they are not normal until they get into a, a certain situation and, you know, they can't, you know, think their way out of it. Um, and autism is a spectrum. That's, you know, it's an autism spectrum. So it can be ADD to, you know, a uh, nonverbal child who, who has abnormal repetitive behaviors. And that's why it's a puzzle. The piece uh, symbol for autism is a puzzle because nobody's the same. And it's true that, you know, all the different therapies, something that could help Marston may not help the next, you know, person that needs it. But yeah, it's a spectrum of different needs. How do you both suggest we normalize the appropriate language regarding autism? Because I imagine that you might receive language or behavior from people that, you know, is maybe uncomfortable or inappropriate. So what is, what is something that we can do to be supportive of families with autistic children? Um, I mean, I personally, I, you know, the language it, it doesn't really affect me. I just feel that we as a society have to be compassionate towards everyone. You know, there's the child that comes to a restaurant and has an episode in a restaurant and um, you don't understand 
what they're going through. And so you're judgmental towards them, but there's no section in the restaurant for autism. And those families that have children with special needs want to take them, their child out so they can learn how to be social. So I just feel that, you know, as a society, we're, we need to be more compassionate towards special needs families, towards each other, you know, and everything that we do, you know, consider that everyone's going through something and kindness is important and compassion is important. Right. I agree. So, I think that the, you know, in, in, in this stage, not to, you know, get upset at you young people that get triggered by certain words and things. It, it's not words, you know, it's the old sticks and stones, you know, break your bones, but words don't hurt. Words do hurt uh, emotionally. But the, the thing that's important is, is compassion. You know, even if you, you see somebody that's having difficulty with drugs, you know, the, the first thing to do is to be judgmental, but you don't know what they've been through. You know, you don't know what was the, 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 the impetus to that, you know, pathologic behavior. Uh, and I think, like Chris said, in a restaurant, there's no uh, space for somebody who makes repetitive noises, you know, who, who lacks some social graces. And you just have to be able to put yourself in those parents' positions and go, you know, they have a right to go out to dinner too. This kid, you know, has a right, you know, to be here and, and to, to try to fit in. And, and that's how you have to take it, is, is be compassionate that um, uh, uh, not everybody's like, like you. And it, 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 it is disruptive. And I'm not being dismissive of somebody who goes, well, I paid to go to a restaurant and have a good experience, but I'm, not, I'm now not having a good experience. I get that, but it, it happens infrequently enough that if it, if it happens once, be compassionate. But I also think that the person who is compassionate, whoever's at their table, sees their uh, experience. And it, if it's their children, it washes on them. They say, oh, look how compassionate my dad is. He, he didn't, he walked over and talked to the, <clears throat> the mom. Our, our actions speak louder than our words. And you don't understand how much those actions impact our children. And I really think that, you know, when you do those things, they may be silent about them, but they'll be thinking about them for a long time. So your actions, you know, whether you're with your friends, whether you're with your family, those actions of kindness wash onto the next people at the table. And it's a great thing. Aside from compassion, what can people do to show up for families who have children with special needs, um, both generally speaking and perhaps what have people done in your life that has really impacted you and made your life better, perhaps easier? Well, we could talk about heal, maybe. Um, I would say just off the top, two things. That, that we've noticed in our community. The one is called Kids Connect. And that uh, William, our godson, and, and Samantha, his fiance, have been volunteering there for years. And that's a, a Friday night where kids, uh, where parents with, with uh, children with aut autism or other special needs can drop their kids off in a safe environment with adults who will watch them and essentially have four hours off on a Friday night 
or they can go to a movie, you know, go out to dinner uh, and then come back and pick up their kids at 10 o'clock. And it's free. And it, right. It's free. It's completely run by donations. People donate their time. The building is donated. Um, the food that they eat is donated. It, it, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, in fact, Marston won't miss it because it's a social interaction. He gets to talk to to people that don't judge him. He gets to, to see uh, other kids his own age, you know, and, and have fun. And, and it, it, it's great for both parts. Uh, I think the the parents, you know, can can de-stress a little bit and the kids can have some social interaction that uh, they may be missing um, because they're not going to, you know, a regular school or things like that. Right. And the volunteers who go there are, um, I know Sam, Samantha and William bring some of their friends that come and they're exposed to maybe the first time kids with special needs and they become part of the community and they become um, little angels in the community and become more aware of, of how to help and how to, you know, uh, pay it forward. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. So for someone who might not be in your area, would your suggestion be to them to perhaps try and start a sort of Kids Connect type program or perhaps offer to babysit or watch over, um, you know, a child with special needs so that the parents have some time off? What is something that someone who might not be, um, who might not have the same access to resources like that? What, what is something that they can do for a family with a kid well, with special needs? Even in your church, um, you can start just start a special needs ministry where um, you, you know, there are, you know, one in 44, or one in 55 children born are born with autism. So it's not, you know, there's a lot of it's people. Not in, unique, right? It's not unique. And I think um, churches are now starting special needs ministries because parents want to go to church, but they can't bring their child into church. So they have, you know, a ministry where they can drop their their children off and they don't even in, in our church you don't even have to be a member of the church you can come on Wednesday night drop your child off and um, go do whatever things you need and then pick your pick your child up at 10 so I think everybody can you know there's so many churches there's so many community centers they can start you know after school care you know uh they could start a ministry. They can start a Kids Connect. Um, it's so it's so ubiquitous that I think somebody in any community could Google, uh, you know, autism help, you know, and put their city in. Or, or Autism Speaks is a national uh, organization and, and put their zip code in and find out what resources are in their areas, what other parents are interested in it. And then usually there'll be some type of support group. And then if you show up there, you can, you know, say what you're interested in. Let's, you know, I heard about this group that, that gives parents the night off or, you know, and I think it would easily spring forward. And then you just, you know, you move forward from there. I love those. You mentioned that Kids Connect is a big part of um, Marston's social life. What other facets of his social life can you speak to? What does his life look like now? Um, right now, he's in a program at University of North Florida, 
and it is a program that was started um, for special needs kids and they um, take three classes per semester. Um, the, the teacher or professor has to uh, okay. okay the kids into the class and um, so he is actually getting the uh, true feeling of what it's like to be a college student, walk on campus, go into a regular class. I mean, there are kids in the class who mentor them, um, help them with homework, help them with um, uh, assignments and different things. And, and I think for him socially, he's grown because it, it, it's multi, it's a multi-step thing. He has to realize what time he has to be at class, you know, when he's supposed to leave that class and go to the next class. So it really grows his brain on, on, um, you know, getting to different things. And, spatial awareness. Yeah. It, it, and he has, so he has, you know, people in his class that he, that are um, neurotypical that he gets to talk to. And, you know, there are, I'm sure there are kids in that class that have siblings with autism or cousins with autism or something. And they're amazing. You know, he, 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 you know, gets to go to the um, restaurants on campus and order. And he actually made a friend at one of the restaurants that um, Chick-fil-A. Right. Yeah. That she, you know, she knows when he comes in and she's super sweet to him. And, you know, he, He's proud to go in there because the person knows him and talks to him. So it's it's a nice it's a nice thing. I'm sure there are kids that are, you know I don't hear about the other side, which is fine with me. But you know he gravitates towards the people who are nice to him. So it's it's cool. That's his That's little awesome. social. No, I think it's it's an interesting program and and hopefully adopted by more more colleges um, because there's a there's an office it's called on campus transition. And not only does he get to audit, you know, several classes a semester, but he's assigned mentors uh, in, in consumer math, interpersonal relationships, diet and fitness, you know, things that people with cognitive, you know, disabilities, you know, sometimes lack. And these student mentors, um, they're paid through like AmeriCorps to do that, but invariably they're almost all in the, uh, the teaching program in the, the School of Education. And so they're, they're learning how to communicate mm -hmm. and, and, and hone their craft and how to teach, you know, somebody with disabilities plus learn. And, and so it, when you go back to the previous question about therapy, well, that's like eight hours of therapy because he goes there. He's got to get there on time. He's got to, to, to mind his watch, get to the classes. And just by osmosis, you know, whether it's art appreciation or the American presidents or U.S. history, he's taken all that he begins to learn and then uh, socially interact and, and how to go to Chick-fil-A to get lunch or, or the pizza place. All that is, is, is excellent uh, behavior. We all come from different walks of life. And Auntie, one thing that you talk about a lot in the book is that you, know, you have such an abundant access to resources and that you, know, you do come from a place of being able to to have gone through so many different therapies and that 
um, your husband is a doctor and that you do have more access to resources than other people might mm-hmm. have, what is your advice for those who might not have the same type of access as you? Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is in the back of the book, I have a resource chapter and I, I put things that I, you know, I haven't done that I know that are, that are good and all the things that I have done. So there's a website, there's a contact, there's a, you know, say they, they have sensory issues. I have, you know, things that, that I've done for sensory issues. So you can buy the book and go in the back of the book and, you know, look at the things that I've done. You can now go on, you know, Google, Google it. You can talk to people um, at the different services. If, if your child is um, someone who would benefit from these, sometimes you can take actual um, videos of your child, upload them and send them to the therapy, you know, whatever therapy you're, you want, and you don't have to go there and have them um, evaluated. So, you know, I, I think that writing the book, giving the resources that I did in it, there's a lot on there, um, helps people who, who maybe don't have access, but they now have access to look and see which ones are good for them and they can zero in on those. And now, you know, insurance, some insurance does pay for therapy at the time I was going through it there, there wasn't, um, insurance paid for it, but some insurances pay for therapy, which is fabulous. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, unfortunately there's still a big dichotomy between autism and other, other, uh, childhood diseases, let's say. Because if, if your child develops leukemia, there's a game plan. You know, you show up at the hospital, he gets diagnosed with leukemia. And when you leave, you know, you have an appointment with the oncologist, the radiation specialist, potentially the surgeon, and they tell you how it's going to play out. Um, they could just tell you from A to Z how, that, how this uh, disease is going to be treated. However, when somebody says, I think your child has autism, they kind of slap you on the back and, and say, good luck. Here's some, you know, names of therapists. And, and there's, there's not like a national game plan. And so unfortunately the parents have to be their child's advocate. And I think, you know, the first thing starts with school because there are services that are offered in, in, in school that you have to make sure they get into from speech therapy to occupational therapy and things like that. Um, and then you just have to be an, an advocate to see what's available in your area, what your, your insurance will pay for. The one thing that we did, which I thought was very helpful, uh, we have University of North Florida in our, our community, is once we knew what therapy we were gonna do, like the occupational therapist says, this needs to be done four times a week. Well, we couldn't pay the occupational therapist to do it four times a week but we had our home therapy. And so we went to UNF, we went to the, the school and asked for a, a good student. Somebody wanted to make, you know, $10 an hour back then or $15 an hour or $7.50 an hour. Uh, and they came to the house and we taught them how to do therapy to, to our child. And so it was, it was somebody who could work with our child every day, something we could afford and something that was making our, our child better. 
but that all starts off with being an advocate for your child. I, I always would kid Chris is that, you know, we knew what the answer was. It was like Jeopardy. The answer is Marston's getting therapy. The question is, how is that going to happen? And then we, we just worked our way backwards from what we knew we wanted to happen. And uh, we, we discovered how to get it done. I truly believe that you guys exhausted all of your options and resources, <laughs> especially after reading the book. I mean, it gave, just yeah. shed so much light onto like the true process of what you guys went through. And I have so much respect for what you guys did and what you continue to do. Um, one thing that I'm not sure that the book highlights as much as I see it through my eyes is how special your guys' relationship is. So as, as partners, as parents, um, as best friends, so what is your, what is the secret sauce to your relationship? Communication. <laughs> what does that look like? <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's an everyday thing. You know, you have to connect, 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 you know, even if it's a short little text every day, um, but we both, you know, live busy lives and it's easy to, you know, not talk during the day and, and just get focused into your own, whatever you're doing. And you can't, you have to realize that there's someone else in the game with you and they're an important part of you. And so you have to know what their needs are and you have to, you know, whatever, bring home something special, you know, write them a special text. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, I mean, it's one of the things that we do, it's kind of, you know, I don't know if some people are going to like this, but he always puts toothpaste on my toothbrush in the morning. Like he gets up before me. And when I go into the bathroom, you know, I already have my toothbrush already. And I just, it's what, it's not that big of a deal. He's got to brush his teeth too, but he, you know, he takes a little extra time to do something, you know, sweet. And I don't know, I think it's connection and, and trying to get better at your relationship, not just staying in that zone is, you know, we're fine. Everything's good, but you got to get better at it, you know? Uncle, think, what would your tips be? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to even um, from the get-go of our relationship. And, and that's because we met at a summer job. She, Her last thought was, I'm never going to date this guy. And, you know, kind of my thought was, oh, she's kind of a pretty girl. But she had a boyfriend. I had a girlfriend. And we, we knew each other. And, and we actually even double-dated. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> it wasn't until a few years later when, you know, we reconnected. we reconnected both without, you know, significant others that that things started to, to flourish. So for two years, we were very good friends and, and she knew about me. I knew about her. And, and then it just proceeded from that. And then the one thing I always try to remember was you know, before we had children, you know, I was a husband and she was a wife. And, and so that bond shouldn't be broken. So even when life is chaotic and falling apart, we always try to make time for ourselves, you know, whether, you know, a grand thing would be a weekend away, but sometimes it's just a, a date night. And sometimes it's just an hour before you go to sleep. 
where we just hang out uh, and, and talk. Um, and then everything else is secondary to that, even though you know you advance from wife to mother and, and so on. Um, but that's just my take on it. You both come from very different realms of expertise, Auntie being a mother and a nutritionist and uncle being a doctor. How did you still stay in your lanes, but also support each other? And were, was there a lot of overlap in, in raising Marston? Hmm. Um, I think for me, you know, I was a I majored in food and nutrition. I was a dietitian. It was the only thing I knew to do at the time when I knew Marston wasn't, you know, doing well, I knew that I could change his diet. You know, back then it wasn't like it is now where everything's organic. And, you know, I had to actually go to the grocery store, you know, look for organic, bring it home. It was, it was a much different, more difficult process but I think my lane was only, I only know this right now. So I'm going to change his diet. Everyone in the house is going to be on the same diet <laughs> and it's going to, you know, it's going to heal his gut because I knew his gut was not doing well. I could tell from, you know, everything that he, he his gut was not doing well. So that was the one thing I did. And then I just would sit with Eric and I would say, look, we have to, um, we have to figure this out. There's no blueprint for this. And, you know, how are we going to figure this out? So I went to him for the doctor part, but I really, you know, I, I know one of the things that I did, I was actually, you know, uh, from a girlfriend, one of my sorority sisters from college, she knew that I was going through this and she was the one I, I think I talk about it in the book she said, Chris, I, I, my mom talks about this patterning, you know, that she's doing with someone in the neighborhood and, you know, it's not Marston, but maybe you could look into it. Well, when I would hear things like that, I would always look into it, whether it was something I used or something I didn't use. I always looked into it with Eric. I would say, okay, this place is in Pennsylvania. You know, this is the person we talked to you know, it's a doctor. Can you, you know, I gave him all, I prepped him. I gave him all the information. All he had to do was call. And, and that's where the overlap was because I knew he could ask the right questions, you know, what it was like, how he could do it. You know, was it something for Marston? I mean, I did more the research end and then just teed him up to find out if it was something, you know, that was going to benefit Marston. So is that, is that right for you? Is that a good? Yeah, everything, all of it is perfect. <laughs> right. And I always thought of it that that Marston's brain was injured, you know, and, and so being a, a physician and surgeon, you know, if the arm is broken, you cast it, you might plate and screw it or put a rod in it. You know, there's always something to heal something that's broken. Um, at this point when he was born and still today, there's a large amount of information that's not known. And so Barton was the tip of the iceberg. So it was, you know, and Chris would prod me, but it was my duty to find out who was doing the, the best research, uh, the, the most interesting research, uh, because things were starting to break, uh, you know, at, at University of California, San Francisco, 
they had got into um, fetal surgery where they were doing, they were fixing birth defects on children who weren't even born yet. They were taking pregnant mothers, opening their bellies, operating on these children, putting them back. It, and one of the, the residents who was working on that at the time was a, a guy named Michael Longacre, who is a, a very smart guy. And um, I would follow his research because he was starting to, to look at stem cells and, and trying to figure out how to get adults to heal like they were fetuses. And I always thought that his research or research like it would be the, the key to understanding what happened to Marston and making him better. I thought it was an anatomic issue and we should be able to fix, you know, anatomic and, and physiologic issues. And so I kept abreast of that information. Auntie, you are the queen of looking for signs and leaning into your faith, <laughs> um, which I, it is something that I haven't learned until later in life. I want to say the last three years have really, I really understood what that means. So for someone who isn't as um, familiar with that or hasn't um, strengthened that muscle as much, what would your advice be to them? Oh, I just think that you, you have this guidance inside of you you know, it's women's intuition that we don't, we don't follow enough because we're so, we're humans that have this special radar. And I think that when you feel it and you know it, you go with it. You know, it's just that simple. I mean, I, and I, I have pushed it down and said, that's not right. This, this sounds crazy. I'm not doing this. And it's come back and hit me. And there's times where I've, I've felt it so strong that I, I, it's overwhelming where I said, this is something we have to do just like the stem cells. When, you know, I had read about stem cells, we had both talked about stem cells. I had seen the woman um, who is a very good friend of mine in Target and I never see her. I saw her, uh, out and she told me about her daughter going to Panama for stem cells. And I just thought, Panama, I'm not going to send my son to Panama. And then, you know, I'd always said, okay, God, if it's something I really, really, really want and really, really, really need for Marston, I want you to just take a two by four and hit me over the head with it. Yeah, Don't be subtle. Don't be subtle. I need a billboard. And that was my thing, my prayer. So I got home and our, our tech guy, Remo, he sends me this thing on stem cells in Panama and it was immediate. I was like, okay, <laughs> he doesn't send me things ever. And he said, I was thinking about you. I don't know why I'm sending this to you, but here it is. And I just went, wow, that's amazing. And I just think sometimes we don't go with our gut. And we just have to learn to trust ourselves because we as human beings have that in us. And it's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA. Uncle, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes there are angels sitting on your shoulder, you know, whispering you things and, and it, whether it's just a feeling in your gut or, or something that, that you actually have to consciously suppress, you probably shouldn't suppress them. You probably should just at least look into it and see where it takes you. But that, that's exactly how the stem cell thing came. And then I ended up calling the people in Panama. And you know, after talking to them, 
came back with the thought that these guys aren't crazy. You know, this guy, gentleman, or Dr. Neil Reardon in, in Panama, he's a smart guy. You know, there's nothing in his education that was different from me. And, and the reason he's in Panama is because there's some, you know, FDA and regulatory issues, um, but not because the science is bad. Um, and then it led you to Duke. It led me to Duke. And then I, I talked to the people at Duke and they had, you know, wonderful things to say. And they said, you know, we're discovering things every day. And, and, you know, just, you know, literally told me we're seeing some amazing results with stem cells. And then Chris gave me the name of Thomas Loeb, who's uh, the head of pediatric surgery at University of Illinois, Chicago. Research. And, <laughs> right. And, and so I called his office, you know, and then it's just like me, you know, he's a busy surgeon. I'm a busy guy. And the person who answered the phone said, yeah, yeah, he'll get back to you. And, and, you know, I was thinking one or two or three days or maybe never, who knows. But that day, which was the end of his day and the end of my day, you know, he called me. And uh, I remember just getting into my car and 45 minutes later, when I was pulling in at home, I was still talking to him and, and he, he is a healer. He was the head of pediatric surgery at St. Jude's Children's Hospital for 20 years. This guy's seen it, done it. He's made people better. And at the end of that conversation, he said, if it was my son, I would do it. Um, wow. And, and that, that sealed it for me. One of the other things, um, it was it was very uh, interesting. I was in New York at a, um, I was doing therapy with Marston. Um, we were sitting in the waiting room with another uh, mom and her son. And she just, I, I didn't know her. She was bringing her son to therapy. I was bringing my son to therapy. She lived in New Jersey and I lived in Florida. And out of the blue, she turned to me and she said, I don't know why I'm supposed to tell you this, but my son, and she told me about a therapy and she goes, your son just, he seems just like my son. And it's just been on my mind the whole time I'm sitting here and I want to tell you about this therapy. And I just went, wow. And so I wrote it all down and I you know, I sent it, she gave me the doctor's name, everything. And I gave it, I sent it to um, Eric and he talked to him and researched it, you know, the talk to the guy. And I just think she, she was, she went with her gut. That was very high. I thanked her. I said, you didn't know me. You didn't know how I was going to react to something like that. And I give you, you know, credit. such yeah. credit for, for being bold enough to, to do what you were, you know, that's scary to come out of your comfort zone and go, I don't know why I'm supposed to tell you this, but I, I am. And I, I just appreciate people who, who do that. So there are so many moments in your book where there are signs from the universe, signs from God, little mm -hmm. angel winks that have kind of helped guide you 100%. both on your journey. You're tuned into Marin Costello Radio with our special guests, Christine Weiss and Dr. Eric Weiss, co-authors of the best-selling book titled Educating Marston. Uncle Eric, what do you want our listeners to know about stem cells and stem cell research for someone who maybe doesn't know anything about it? Okay, well, it, it's, it's amazing, first of all, and I think will be the biggest thing that happens to medicine over the next 10 years. Uh, 
it, it all starts back, you know, I'll give you a little history just for two seconds. Right, tell them where I come from. Okay, it, the, I'll have to get it down. I think it started at Stanford and went to Berkeley. I went from Berkeley and went, then went to Stanford. But two researchers took two mice that were genetically identical, one old and one young, sewed them together. So essentially they became Siamese twins. And then the older mouse showed signs of getting younger and the younger mouse showed signs of getting older. And so that started the question is, what circulates in young people to keep them young? And what do older people not have that makes them old? And that was this question that got generated in the, in the 60s. And it led us to these things called stem cells. And you know, early, probably 20 years ago, there was a big public outcry against fetal stem cells. And that was with when George Bush was president, George W. Bush, when he kind of said no federal funds are gonna to go to, to uh, fetal stem cells because there was a big scare that there would be babies who would be aborted just for their stem cells. And, and, and that's how they that's, would be used. And that's not what this is. And that's not what this is because fetal stem cells, if you can think about it, they're designed to make a baby. Now there's something that we all have called adult stem cells. Now adult stem cells are designed to heal. And things have been shown that incredible stuff with adult stem cells. And the hard thing for people to understand is when a baby's born, a baby doesn't have fetal stem cells anymore. They have adult stem cells. So about midway through the second trimester, the baby's no longer being formed, it's just growing. And so by the time it's born and what's in the umbilical cord and the placenta, are, are umbilical cord uh, stem cells, but they're adult stem cells. And there's a variety of stem cells. And these stem cells have been shown, or first of all, cells in general have been shown to help human conditions for over 150 years. If you think the first one was a blood transfusion, you're getting somebody else's cells in you to keep you alive, all the way up to now, where when kids have leukemia, they get umbilical cord stem cells to reconstitute their whole immune system. And so it wasn't a great leap of faith to see what else they can do. Tell them a simple process of what, you know, what they take the umbilical cord. Okay, so uh, a healthy live baby birth, uh, something that's called medical waste, usually the placenta, the umbilical cord get thrown away. But now people know that you can put a needle in that umbilical cord, harvest the umbilical cord blood. And in fact, if that mother wants to take it and freeze it, they can have it for that for their child in case they ever get sick or, or some type of other medical issue where they can use it. Or it can be banked in a publicly held tissue bank where the, the DNA kind of gets posted online. Because one of the things now you don't hear about bone marrow transplants anymore is because the umbilical cord can be, can be done for that. But to make a long story short, umbilical cord cells and what they make are something called exosomes have been shown to be able to cross the blood-brain barrier, go into your brain and turn off neuroinflammation. And it seems that these kids with autism have neuroinflammation. Uh, and, and so this, it, the research on this is exploding to the point where I think I'll just mention one study because it, it, it shows a lot of, of information, a lot of promise is that at Duke, they took 25 children, all with autism, all had umbilical cord blood, and they gave uh, these kids a single dose of umbilical cord blood. And 60% of these kids got better. Uh, 
what they also did on these kids is they did uh, MRIs and EEGs uh, pre-op and then post-op. And what they've shown is that kids that have difficulty speaking have less uh, neuronal connections in the areas of the brain that deal with speaking. So clearly they have an abnormal speaking center in their brain. But after the umbilical cord cells, they repeated the test and new connections were made. And with those new connections, the kids were speaking better. So it's truly the first therapy for, for children with autism where there's something you can measure beforehand, something you can measure secondhand and see that it's normalized. Because the only thing for autism before this was therapy. But if, if your brain's inflamed, if your brain's not working well, it's hard to see how therapy can work too well. But if you can take a brain that's abnormal and make it normal or as close to normal as you can get, then therapy has a chance of working even better. So uh, this is cutting edge stuff. It's only been published for about a year, year and a half. Uh, but, but tell them how it, you know, cause it's very simple. I thought it was gonna be, you know, hard to give Marston stem cells, but it, it's just a- um, It's an intravenous it, shot. It's just an IV. It's, it, it's, it comes as a transplant because you're getting live cells, live cells and, and these cells in the umbilical cord that go from the mom to the baby, I, you know, in layman's term, they're, they're generic. They haven't determined self yet. self yet. So they can go to anyone. So they take the blood out and then they ship it to you as a transplant because they're live cells. And then they put them in a, a bag of fluid and then they just give them an IV. It's not a, you know, huge, real, medical, huge procedure. medical procedure. I remember going, I, I didn't know any of this was going to happen. And I, it was kind of um, anticlimactic. Anticlimatic. Yeah. And, and, and then the next day it was amazing. So it wasn't um, scary. It's just, a, you know, getting an IV. How many procedures has Marston had and how frequently would you suggest one getting them? Well, they, they don't have those, um, since it's so new, they haven't um, really. Yeah, if you, if, you, if you look at the Duke study, they gave one dose and at six months, the children were better and they plateaued at six months. So the question is, what would a second dose at six months do? Or what would a second dose at three months do? Right. And, and nobody knows that. And so if, if you look how studies are done in medicine, a phase one study is, is this stuff safe? And that's been done with umbilical cord blood and it's certainly safe. And the second phase study is, is this effective? Is this do what we wanted it to do? Then the third phase study is dosage and administration. And then the fourth phase, is this better than anything else we have? So the phase two studies are just coming on board right now. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, universities are trying to recruit kids for phase two studies. And this mm -hmm. would be something that I would say every mother with a child with autism should look at the local university medical school mm -hmm. and say, are you recruiting kids? For stem cell research. For, for stem cell research. Because it'll be free. It'll be free. And so we, Marston got a total, I think, of five doses, and we, we spread that out about every three to four months. Mm -hmm. Four months, yeah. And how long ago was his last dose? Oh, three years. 
probably two years ago because we stopped. There, there are some FDA regulations around stem yeah. cells and those are out, but I would say- Two to three years. Two to three years. Yeah. When do you think that stem cells are going, use, the use of stem cells are going to be more widely accepted? I think that within the next five years that you will see that this will be a primary form of treatment for autism. Just like it's a primary treatment for kids with leukemia who are failing chemotherapy. It's been proven it works. And so the, without getting into the weeds, the way stem cells work is by producing something called exosomes. And I think those exosomes will be, will be used as therapy within five years. Perfect. How can we, the listeners, the community support stem cell research in the fight against autism? Is there anything that we can do? I think that the biggest thing is whenever you mention stem cells, 90% of people are thinking about fetal stem cells. Um, and this couldn't be any more different. Uh, you know, umbilical cord blood and stem cells are not found by any church or organization. And that's because it's a product of normal, healthy births that are usually being thrown away. And so the vast majority of umbilical cord blood is being thrown away. And so when people understand that, that these little cells are a product of a normal birth. Most of them are being thrown away, yet they have incredible- uh, Potency. Potent, potency <laughs> in a variety of diseases. There's some diseases now, they're called in, inborn metabolic diseases that they're showing great promise for that uh, it could potentially be curable when these kids are all dying, you know, at two or three or four years. So it's yeah. not, it's not something that um, they should worry about that they're gonna, you know, harm a baby or, you know, this is, we're throwing away, you know, something that was made by the mother and the baby. I mean, it is powerful that that umbilical cord is what keeps life going. So. Is there any other information about stem cells that you'd like for us to know? Uh, yeah, we could write a book about it, but I, <laughs> I, I, I think that... <laughs> I think the, the key is these, these things that I, I kind of said is that the stem cell, the adult stem cells job is to heal. And most people think, oh, you get stem cells. I have a bad heart. It's going to travel to my heart and they're going to turn into heart cells and my heart will be better. But that's not how stem cells work. Stem cells make these things called exosomes. And these exosomes travel to your heart and it tells your heart to regenerate itself. And so it, the way it works is by making your own body heal itself, which is an amazing thing, which I think is what everybody is really striving for. If you can figure out how to make your body heal itself, that's what you would want. With Marston as advanced as he, has, as he is now in his adult life, what does, quote, doing the work look like for you both now? Well, it's still, you know, I still go to Marston's home, you know, three to four days a week. You know, he still has a mentor. Um, you know, we still, it's not, it's not an everyday um, in my house therapy. It's more independent. He has, he has much more independence. Um, I do have to check on him. I think, um, 
you know, the cell phone is like an amazing thing for kids like, you know, Marston because they can FaceTime you and you can see what they're doing in their home. You know, even when they go to the grocery store, you know, Marston, you know, will FaceTime me on, you know, something he's confused about buying, you know, is this something I should buy or is this something I should buy? And that's, to me, I'm always blown away that, you know, I can, you know, I can do that with them and it, it saves, it's much more efficient and saves time for me and for him also, because he's independent, he's, you know, doing the job. So it's not as much work, but I'm still hands-on and I do have a, a mentor that um, he works with that helps him with, um, you know, preparing meals and cooking and, um, you know, he's not great at that. He has, you know, special things that he can do all by himself, very simple, but um, yeah, it's, it's good. We're in a good place right now. Right. I think now, especially at our age, we want to have that transition. We know obviously we're not going to be around forever. And so we're trying to impart uh, uh, in him how to live a great life and try to see, you know, the little spots that that uh, may need to get worked on, you know, uh, from social awareness to, to even physical fitness and uh, uh, diet and exercise, things like that. Well, you both do so much to support each other and your family and support Marston. And I'd like to know how we can support you. <laughs> Just be the greatest little cousin ever. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, you know, Marston loves to call you. I know he calls you all the time and, and um, he just likes to, he wants to be part of the family too and in his way. And I just think supporting him by, you know, making him part of the group and um, we have such a big family and. Um, yeah, we just don't want him lonely. You know, I think that's the, the worst human condition that you could ever have is feel like, you know, I think people were made to be social. It, it, that's why COVID was so devastating devastating for everyone it was more devastating for kids on the spectrum because that's their was their only little outlet and they didn't a lot of them didn't understand why they were not getting to see you know and loneliness and yeah it's a very very difficult thing in life so so yeah i would just you know, to, to keep Marston part of the family and, and, you know, when we're gone, just uh, keep it up. Yeah, I think that a, mo- a mother of an autistic child, the number one question you ask them that's always on their mind when they go to sleep at night is what's going to happen when I'm gone? Who's going to take care of my baby? So, you know, that's, we're the same. You know, we worry about that all the time. You know, you can only put so much into place and, you know, hope that the next generation will be able to help, you know, Austin and Williams and Marins will be part of the, you know, part of healing. And I think the one thing we didn't touch on, not to make this last any longer, but is parents think about, you know, the financial means because it may be that you just get an insurance, you know, a life insurance policy that's only $30 a month now, 
but you know, when you do pass away, there's a quarter of a million dollars in a trust fund that will help, you know, that person's sibling, you know, help take care of them. Because, you know, obviously we expect our children to marry fantastic people, but you never want to say, how come your brother needs this and I can't get a new car, you know? So that's, that's one thing that I would suggest is that they, they think about that long-term because it's easier to put that type of money away when you're young, when the kid's two or three or four or five, and then just have a, a separate life insurance policy for them. And then a, a special needs trust fund or something like that. And if people want to learn more, they can go to educatingmarston.com and also find Educating Marston on Amazon, correct? Correct. Correct. Beautiful. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. I learned so yeah. much and I know that our audience is going to be so grateful for all of the, all the information and the wisdom that you guys shared with us today. You're amazing. You're amazing. Love you so, so much. <laughs> thank Love you. Love you. Love you. This has been one of the most meaningful conversations on Marin Costello Radio to date, and I could not be more grateful to share Educating Marston with our community. A huge thank you to my aunt and uncle for being on the show, and another big thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and our producers at Island City Media Group. If you loved this podcast, please like, follow, and subscribe. And if you want to connect offline, you can find me on Instagram at Marin Costello and Marin Costello Radio. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We will see you next week. <laughs>